Hello, friends. Welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. Roscoe Smith never wanted to have a career in higher education, but the opportunity to pursue a relationship with his future wife, Rhonda, was too compelling for the New York native. Listen as he shares about falling in love, the Lord's faithfulness through suffering, and 40 years at Cedarville University. Thank you, Sarah, for the introduction, and welcome back to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. I'm Mark Weinstein, and joining me today on the program is Roscoe Smith III, (laughs) who has served at Cedarville for a large part of 40 years. Roscoe has a long history with Cedarville University. He graduated in 1982. He's worked at the university for nearly 40 years, and it is the place where he met his wife, Rhonda, and like many Cedarville families, both of his two children, Kaylee and Jaden, graduated from Cedarville. Roscoe is a cancer survivor and he has served the university in various capacities, including today as director of gift planning. Roscoe also is a practical joker. You might recall a few weeks ago that Roscoe and some of his colleagues played an April Fool's joke on me. Instead of me talking with Roscoe on the program like we are today, unknowingly, producer Chris Massa played host as Roscoe was an intentional no-show for his scheduled podcast recording. What I learned is that Roscoe and several of my colleagues, including producer Chris Massa, set it up for Roscoe to not attend the previously scheduled recording so that Chris could ask me questions. If you missed that episode, you can go back to the archives to April 1st and get a good laugh on me. Today, though, is my turn to return the favor on Roscoe, and we will dive into his career and life journey without any more practical jokes. So with that said, let me welcome... Roscoe Smith to this week's Cedarville Stories podcast. It's great to have you in studio, Roscoe. Thanks, Mark. I just got a text. I need to set, step <laughs> out for about 10 minutes. Is that yeah, all right? <laughs> I've, I've heard that before. But uh, since, you're, since you brought that up, I, I need to open the podcast by asking you, did you really think that April Fool's joke was going to work? I, I thought it would work for a while. But I thought at some point you would get suspicious, which sounds like you did. Yeah. So... But yeah, in fact, I think it did work for a while. It did. So when you heard it... Uh, I got to admit, I did feel kind of bad. You know, the, the falsification of text messages, that <laughs> does go to integrity and conduct, but we won't go there. We'll do that for another podcast. It, it was all fun. And it was all good. And uh, I know a lot of people have had good laughs on it. So, And I enjoyed hearing your story. And Chris did a great job. He did. Yeah. So as I mentioned in the introduction, Roscoe, you've worked at the university close to 40 years, and I realize Cedarville is a special place for you. Did you really see yourself as a lifetime employee, a <laughs> long-standing person here at the university? Yeah, not at all. Not at all. My motivation in getting a job on campus was to pers- pursue a girl. <laughs> and that was Rhonda. And that was Rhonda. Yeah, so it worked out. So I'm, I'm happy about that. But Rhonda was uh, a year younger, and so when I graduated um, and didn't have any firm plans, I went back to my parents' home in upstate New York and was trying to decide what's next and realized soon that if I really wanted to continue to date her, I needed to be closer to her. Right. And so uh, about that time, a friend of mine, uh, John Hart, who was working in admissions, Mm -hmm let me know that there was going to be a new position in admissions. And so I applied for that and Dave Wormsby was kind enough to hire me. And uh, that got me back out close to Rhonda. And 
a year later, we were engaged. So what was that? Was it, it was a brand new position? Brand new position. It was a full-time guest coordinator. So the person who uh, schedules and makes all the arrangements for people visiting campus, setting up appointments, scheduling tours, uh, arranging housing, all of those kinds of details. I've heard, I don't have fact of this, but you can verify. I heard in one of the visits that you met the Pope. <laughs> Tell me about that story. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, back, back in the day, we had a room which was close to where we're sitting right now where we would do our presentations. The presentation would be you know, all the people who are visiting for the day, we'd get them in one room and tell them about Cedarville and do a Q&A and you know, try, to, try our best to uh, uh, give them a good representation of what Cedarville University is all about. And so I, was, I had done one of those. And at the end of the presentation, the room emptied out, except for one young man who stayed in the room. And so I started a conversation with him and um, started asking questions like, you know, how'd you hear about Cedarville and, you know, what brought you here? And uh, I, he told me that the, the Pope sent him to visit Cedarville, <laughs> which I thought was a strange response. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously it was a young man who was unstable. And um, so I chatted for a while and just realized this was not going to go anywhere. And we left the room. I thought he was on his way. Uh, I got a call maybe half an hour, hour later from campus safety uh, that there was somebody locked in a dorm room or a lounge maybe. He wouldn't come out and said that he had signed up and been admitted to Cedarville. Well, he'd fill out our registration card for the day. So. <laughs> Yeah, we found it. It really is. It is a sad story. Um, uh, he had just been released from a mental hospital and mm. was hitchhiking his way across Ohio and somehow ended up in Cedarville. But yes, the Pope had sent him. The Pope was going to pay for him to come to Cedarville. Uh, it's a little different story than what I heard. I, I was told that he thought he was the Pope. <laughs> no. Well, back to the rest of your story, Roscoe. As I failed to mention, uh, you've served about 40 years at Cedarville, but in three different periods. Right. And um, so you were in your job. Four years later, you resigned the position so you could put your MBA at Wright State. Mm -hmm. Were you planning to go into business or what motivated you to pursue an MBA? Yeah, I, I didn't have a firm plan, but I knew I didn't intend to stay in higher education at that point. And I had an undergraduate degree in business. And so I thought, well, if I want to make a transition that uh, perhaps getting my MBA and using that then as um, a vehicle for uh, moving into uh, a business career yeah. would be a good step. So in the, my fourth year uh, working on campus, I started working part-time on my MBA at Wright State University. And at the end of that fourth year, an RD here at Cedarville named John DeMeester uh, was finishing up his MBA and he was also a graduate teaching assistant. Okay. And he encouraged me to apply for that position. So I did, was selected. And so that allowed me to attend full-time, have my schooling paid for and teach uh, part-time as a graduate assistant. 
and finish my MBA in one year instead of spreading it out as a part-time student. So that's what I did. I, but I, I wasn't really sure exactly what I would do when I was finished with that degree. So you finished the degree and you're asking the question of what comes next mm-hmm. for you. And then you connect with Dave Ormsby at Cedarville and he offers you an opportunity to come back. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So I was uh, getting very close to the final weeks of that MBA program, was uh, starting uh, some job search, but really didn't have anything definite going on. And I got a call out of the blue from Dave Ormsby and he said, I've got a new position When I left Cedarville, I was the assistant director of admissions, and he said this new position would be the associate director of admissions, so it would be an advancement, and he asked if I would consider coming back. Again, I really wasn't planning on staying in higher ed, and so I said, well, I'll come back for one year. Yeah. Interesting that your first job at Cedarville, it was a brand new position. This is a brand new position. So what made you want to come back? Well... I mean, I loved working at Cedarville. I loved Cedarville, and I loved working at Cedarville. Uh, Dave and I worked very well together, and um, so I, I thought that one year would give me an opportunity to pursue the business career I thought I would have, and um, you know, it would give me some employment for that year. So it just seemed like it would be, it just kind of made sense. And so I said, yeah, I'll do that if as long as you understand, I'm not going to commit to more than a year. And he was fine with that. Obviously. He was fine with that, yeah. So you told Dave that you wouldn't commit for longer than a year. And right around this time, you were starting to experience some challenges health-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it was in 1987, you you were teaching rock climbing. You took a trip to West Virginia, began to experience further health concerns. What's going on with you health-wise? What were the symptoms that you were experiencing? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was 1988. And okay. uh, it was in the spring spring of 88. And I was just feeling a general fatigue, malaise. I felt like I'd put on a little bit of weight because my stomach was protruding a little bit. And so I just chalked it up to I'm, you know, the winter. I didn't do enough activity. I'm just kind of out of shape. I put on a few pounds. But at the same time, I also had this bump or lump on the side of my neck that had grown enough that that it was noticeable. You could see it and it wasn't going away. And so I didn't connect all of those things together, but I just wasn't feeling that great. And so I decided I should go see the doctor and see what's going on. So you went to the doctor and uh, they initially thought you had an infection. Right. So did you let it go or did you worry or what, what was the next step? Yeah, I didn't think too much about it because, you know, the questions they asked me, you know, have you been involved in, you know, activities where you could have gotten an infection? Did you drink out of a hose? And, and I, you know, I had done that. In West Virginia. In West Virginia on a rock climbing trip. And yeah. So I, I didn't think too much about it, but they did some blood work. And the doctor's assessment was, you know, you're a healthy young man. I was 27 years old, really good health. And he said, you probably just have some type of an infection. Worst case scenario, um, there, you might be you know, a, a blood disease. Okay. So let's move forward to Memorial Day. And you and Rhonda were scheduled to go to John and Sherry Hart's house for a picnic. Right. Uh, you were about to leave the house for the Hart's when your doctor's office called, and they were adamant that you come to the hospital right away. What caused... What caused the doctor to be so strong in his directive? 
So after uh, that initial doctor visit with a family physician, they did some blood work and they decided uh, that they wanted to see what was going on with that lump on my neck. So they scheduled me to talk to a surgeon about getting a biopsy done. So when I went to the surgeon's office, they ordered blood work again. Okay. And so unbeknownst to me then, they had compared the test results from those two visits that were just a week or two apart. And the test results uh, were enough to alarm them and say, you really need to come into the hospital right now. I, you know, they called and I said, well, you were going to this, this uh, picnic, you know, can we come in afterward? And they said, no, you need to come in right now. And so what I found out is that because of my blood counts, they were concerned that if I were to start bleeding, cut myself or internal bleeding, that uh, my blood wouldn't clot. There was a very real potential that I could just bleed out and die. So that had to cause a little bit of panic yeah. with you and Rhonda. Did you get admitted to the hospital that night or that day? Immediately. Yeah. I came in just It thinking, wasn't just a visit. You, you had to stay there. Yeah. Right. How long were you hospitalized? I was there uh, really just uh, for just a few days. Um, that, that surgeon that I had met with earlier uh, came into a room, the hospital room with um, another doctor who she introduced as uh, their oncologist, hematologist, okay. and uh, explained these blood tests and said, we are you know, almost certain that what we're looking at is leukemia. Okay. Uh, the only way to know that with certainty is to do a bone marrow biopsy. And so we'd like to schedule you for a bone marrow biopsy. They admitted me to the hospital, did the biopsy. And so really, it was just a matter of a few days. And I was hospitalized at that point for the next um, probably a couple months, six to eight weeks. Straight in the hospital. Straight, yeah. Because when I started uh, chemotherapy, it was... There are three phases to it. It was part of a, a, a study, actually. And the first phase was a 30-day, what they call induction program. Okay. And very high doses of chemotherapy. And uh, for that, you stayed hospitalized. Once that was over, and I moved into the second phase, which they called consolidation, and that was six months, then I was able to go home and just come back for short stays in the hospital uh, for some of the chemo that required hospitalization, but most of it I was able to do from home at okay. that point. So take us back to the moment that you get the diagnosis. You hear yeah. it for the first time that you do have leukemia. What thoughts went through your mind? That is, um, nothing can prepare you for that experience. You know, again, I'm 27 years old, just finished my MBA a year before I'm, I'm, I'm ready for life to really get started. Yeah. And now they're talking to me about a life-threatening disease. And I would say for me, in a lot of ways, uh, my brain just kind of shut down. It, it couldn't process that. It couldn't think about that. And so I am so thankful for a wife who was much stronger than I ever imagined. Um, I had no idea how she could step up with strength and courage in a difficult situation and really take charge because I was not in the, a mindset to really make good decisions for myself. So Rhonda was there with me. She heard what the doctors had to say. She asked good questions and she became my advocate and was really proactive in 
what we needed to do next. How long had you been married at that point? We had been, we got married in July of 83, and this was May of 88, so five years. Okay. So Rhonda was your advocate. Um, That surprised you to a degree, right? Yeah. I mean, we just had never been in circumstances like that. So I'd never, I'd never seen her have to respond. So are there any, or were there any spiritual lessons that you learned from that time frame? whether it's right this at this point in your journey or further down the road that you can even draw upon today or even use today? The thing that to this day that I really don't quite understand is that from the very beginning, uh, both Rhonda and I had a quiet peace or confidence that I would survive this, that, that this was not going to be the end of my life, mm-hmm. which looking back could not be based on the statistics. What were the stats? Well, you know, when, <laughs> when the doctors explained it, they said the, the type of leukemia that you have, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL, is what we commonly see in children. So when we talk about children having leukemia, most often it's this ALL form and they said in children, we're over 90% successful in, in curing them, you know, a five-year um, success rate. Yeah. With adults, we're not quite as successful. <laughs> well, that, so that's all they really said. And this is 1988. This is 10 years before Google even launched. So, you know, you couldn't go out and just Google this stuff and right. find out what, what, what the real, what the, what the truth was. And so I thought, well, you know, a little less than 90 is still good, right? I mean, you could, you know, 70, 80 percent is not bad. That's good. But even today, the, the reality is that it's about 40 percent wow. um, survival rate, five-year survival rate. And so I didn't know that, which, which in hindsight is probably not a bad thing. But yeah, Rhonda and I, we, we've, we, in fact, we just talked about it recently. We drove by St. Elizabeth Medical Center. You know, that's, that's where I was throughout this treatment. And we talked about it and, and we said, yeah, it's, it's just... Hard to explain, but certainly we, you know, we credit that to God's comfort, right. the, the Holy Spirit in our time of deep, deep need uh, was there e- even before we asked for it. Mm. Uh, God was giving us comfort and peace in our darkest time. So when I think of someone with cancer and I think of chemo, people lose their hair. Did you lose your hair uh-huh. or what physically changed yeah, I lost, I lost my hair. I lost um, a lot of weight. I wasn't a big guy to begin with, but lost a significant amount of weight, including muscle mass. So I was just very weak. In fact, like my hands were so weak, I couldn't even button a shirt. Really? Like I just couldn't, my fingers just couldn't work the button to get into that hole and manipulate that. I was, uh, wasn't looking very good at, yeah. that, at that point. Yeah. So... All our listeners know that leukemia is a serious illness. Yeah. So I don't want to make light of it at all in, in your situation. But how confident were you that you would become a cancer survivor? Or or did you have thoughts that you could pass away from this leukemia? Yeah. Again, um, I just had I had a confidence that that I was going to survive this. But it wasn't always, not every day was a good day. Uh, the worst day, as, as, as I look back on, I think the worst day, the lowest moment I had is uh, there was a young man who mm-hmm. within a year of my diagnosis was diagnosed as an 18-year-old with the same ALL 
um, was working with the same doctor and in the same chemo program. And so uh, I got to know him and his mom, you know, sitting in the doctor's office and just, you know, talking about our situations. And so, you know, pretty regularly I would run into him getting chemo or just coming in for a, vis- a, a doctor checkup. One day I was in the doctor's office and talking to the nurse and I said, hey, I haven't seen Shane for a while. And she said, well, actually Shane's been hospitalized. He's, he's relapsed and he's in the ICU. Mm. And so I knew that that wasn't good. I really didn't want to have to see the reality of a leukemia patient who had relapsed. Um, but I knew that in ICU, they only let family members in. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I'll go down to the hospital and I'll just visit with his mom. So when I got down to the hospital and came to the ICU unit, um, his mom came through the doors and she said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. She grabbed me by the arm and pulled me into ICU and took me over to Shane's bed. And at that point, Shane was really struggling with infections, which is really what kills leukemia patients. He was getting breathing uh, treatment. So he had this mask on. Uh, he just looked small and he had signs of infection, um, spots on, on his skin. Mm. So we talked for a little bit. I tried to encourage him and his mom. But seeing that uh, really put me into a dark place. In fact, for the next few days, I, I would have this, this dream and I would see Shane in that hospital bed. But when he would roll over and I would see him, it was my face I would see. Yeah. And so, you know, there were moments where I really did wrestle with my mortality and yeah. wonder. And then, and then some days you just, you feel so bad mm. that you just think, I, I don't know how long I can do this. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't want to, sound like, oh, it was, you know, we were confident the whole time and everything uh, went smoothly. It, it was a deep, dark time. But through it, God was with us. And one of the interesting things is, you know, you know I said, you know, um, we didn't have Google to search. We also didn't have Facebook and the kinds of social media that, you know, today people can use to get support and ask for prayer right. and things like that. Right. But it was amazing the cards I would get from people all across the country. Really? I never, I never heard of. And they would be these older women who in their Sunday school class, somebody had told them my story. They were praying for me. I had, I had people praying for me that I've to this day never met, never knew. And yet they were faithful prayer warriors. And that was so incredibly encouraging to know going through it, that I wasn't alone. Yeah. And your Cedarville community made sure you weren't alone as well. And yeah. I remember you mentioning to me that during the time you were in the hospital, several of the Cedar, your Cedarville colleagues, including Pat Bates, right. Dick Walker, they were helpful to you. How did they encourage you during your time of need? Yeah. Um, Pat was one of the very first people to come to my room when I was like just a day or two into the hosp- into my hospital stay. She was there almost immediately. And uh, Pat was a cancer survivor. Right. Um, she had 
been treated for lymphoma. And so she'd been through this. And so I would say overall, some of the most encouraging and helpful people in my life at that time were survivors, people who had okay. been through what I was going to go through or something very similar yeah. and could speak to that and were survivors of it. Um, so, you know, I could see people in front of me that had survived this and been successful in their treatment. You know, she told me what I was going to be in for yeah. and and helped to prepare me. Didn't uh, Chief Dick Walker <laughs> yeah. uh, bring you hats or? He did. Yeah. Dick came and visited me and just like Dick, you know, he had something for me and, and uh, in anticipation uh, I'm, I'm sure he was thinking of, of losing all my hair. He brought me um, Cedarville baseball caps, which I got a lot of use out of. <laughs> yeah. But perhaps the most unique situation while you were in the hospital yeah. was a day when Dr. Paul Dixon, Dr. James T. Jeremiah, and members of the president's cabinet walked into your room at St. Elizabeth's and prayed over you. How meaningful was that to you? So I had only been uh, transferred at, into St. Elizabeth's, couldn't have been more than a week or two the end of the school year. And so Dr. Dixon was having kind of an end of the school year dinner for his cabinet. And they were going out to dinner somewhere in Dayton. And so they decided to come to my hospital room and visit me before they went to dinner. And so I'm in my bed and I wasn't expecting them. Uh, but all of a sudden, Dr. Dixon and this whole crowd of men in suits, all Dark dressed suits. up, <laughs> come in and stand all around the three sides of my hospital bed and to let me know that um, they're praying for me and to encourage me and that Cedarville um, would be there for me. And then as a group, they prayed for me and they weren't there long, but yeah, I mean, as a young man, I felt uh, very humbled yeah. that people of that stature, you know, the the leaders on campus would take the time to come in and visit me. But, but I found out later from one of my nurses that it created quite a stir yeah. <laughs> at the nurse's station because they really didn't know me much at that point. I hadn't been there very long. And, you know, they, they saw all these these uh, older gentlemen, suited gentlemen come in to visit me and spend some time with me and then to leave. So they were trying to figure out what that was all about and who I was. I must be somebody special you're, or important. You're, you're royalty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it really threw them for a while. Well, it's been about 35 years since your leukemia treatments. And today you are cancer free. Right. Praise which, God. Which is great news. Absolutely. Do you ever have thoughts now about how cancer impacted your life? And are you able to use your experience from that to encourage others? Um, boy, there's so much in that, so much in that question. Uh, so one of the big things was uh, outcomes. We, we weren't sure that we would be able to have a family after all of that. As oh. we neared the end of the chemo treatments, you know, we, we had, the doctors warned us right at the outset that, you know, with all this chemo, you may not be able to father children afterward. And uh, we said, well, we're going to, you know, we'll take that risk. We just need to start chemo right away. So uh, we didn't do anything um, uh, uh, to respond to that. But as we got to the end of the treatment, we brought the question back up, you know, what are the, what are the chances that you think we might be able to have a family? And the doctors said, well, there's probably less than a 10% chance that you can father children after all this. And of course, we were disappointed about that, but we thought, you know, if we really wanted to, we could adopt. There, are other, there were other options. Right. 
but God had other plans for mm. us. And it was Labor Day weekend in 1992, so not even a year after my last chemo treatment, that um, Rhonda took a pregnancy test and found out she was pregnant. At first, we were quite nervous about that because you know, during chemo, they always had these warnings about being careful because uh, this chemo can cause birth defects and things like that. So we were quite cautious for a while until we met with a geneticist and uh, they uh, eased our concerns and said that we really shouldn't be at a higher risk. In April of uh, 1993, then my daughter was born and she was healthy and fine. And so we always called her our miracle baby. And yeah. then two years later, my son was born, another miracle. You know, that's something we, we, we weren't sure was going to happen, but God blessed us with that. And now they're married, and now you're a grand. Now I'm a grandpa. grandparents, right? How many grandkids? Uh, I've got three grandkids. Yeah, uh, Kaylee has three children, um, two girls and a boy, and um, we are very blessed. Yeah. As I prepare to close today's program, I mentioned earlier that you've held a lot of positions at Cedarville, including admissions guest coordinator, associate director of admissions, and director of admissions. You're also were the director of public relations. That sounds like a fun job. <laughs> Associate, uh, Associate Vice President of Enrollment Management and now Director of Gift Planning. With all of these positions in mind, Roscoe, is there an experience or two that jumps out that helps you see how the Lord has used you at Cedarville and in the lives of so many people? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to answer that. I mean, one of the things that when I look back on my time here, um, I've had the opportunity to work for, work for some great leaders and I've also um, led uh, some really amazing people. And so um, it makes me extremely proud to, to look at what some of them have gone on to do and to think that you know, I had some small part in helping them get started in yeah. their professional careers. But I, I was really blessed about a year ago. Um, I had gotten a contact on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Somebody uh, reached out to me. And they said, by the way, were you the director of admissions back in the mid-90s? And I answered, yeah, yeah, I was. And, and uh, he said, well, I've got a story I want to I wanna share with you. And so um, he emailed me a two-page letter not long after that, which explained that um, when he was in high school, he had a good friend who was from a strong Christian family, and this friend was looking to come to Cedarville. And so through that friend's influence, this gentleman decided he would come and check out Cedarville. That led him to apply to Cedarville. But he struggled a little bit with our application where we asked for uh, him to share his testimony of personal faith in Jesus Christ sure. and some other things. And uh, even his pastor made a little bit of a joke about those Baptists. And so he didn't grow up in that kind of an environment. So through the process uh, of reviewing his application, uh, it just wasn't clear to us that he really knew what it meant to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. And so I had reached out to him and asked him to clarify. And that led him to meet with his pastor, meet with some others, start reading the scriptures. And through all of it, he recognized that he had never placed his trust in Christ. And, um, and that's what he needed to do. And so because we asked him to really stop and think about his faith in Christ. It's put him on a journey that led to his salvation. And 
I didn't learn about all of this. It, he ended up coming to Cedarville, graduating, mm-hmm. and uh, he's got a, a student that's enrolled here now. Oh, really? Yeah. And so, you know, this happened back in the mid, mid-90s, you know, like almost 30 years ago. And so, you know, I was just, I was doing my job back then and not, rec- not realizing the impact that it might have. I, I, I realized what I was, hoped would happen in those situations, but, um, you know, it took me 30 years to find out. And so to know that just in doing my job and being faithful to that, that God um, allowed me to be in a place where I could help point somebody to Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior um, is a thrill. And, you know, there's no greater accomplishment that you could point to than that story, Roscoe. I'm glad you did. To see the, the students who you've interacted with, to see them grow in their faith and then be successful professionally uh, has to bring you great. Yeah, you know, over the years, um, you know, my job was, you know, for most of, most of my time at Cedarville was, you know, working with high school students, 16, 17, 18 year olds and seeing them in kind of that immature point of life and, and then helping them to make their decision to come to Cedarville. But I would always go to commencement and it was so exciting to see students four or five years later walk across the stage and say, I remember when they were a high school student and man, how their life has changed, how God has used Cedarville in their life and you know what they're going to go on to do. I can only imagine that was uh, uh, probably, it was always rewarding at getting started to see them right. come in, <laughs> right? but to see them four years later graduating and, and how their lives have been transformed. Right in their thousand day journey. We didn't talk about it back then in those terms, but that's what it was. Um, really was the biggest thrill for, yeah. for me. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I assume at this point in your career that uh, you do consider a career in higher education, your, your <laughs> calling, right? It, it really has been. Yeah. Um, God had plans for me that, that I never imagined and I'm so thankful. Yeah. We, we all are. So Roscoe, I want to thank you. Um, for being a friend, um, for being on today's podcast and just sharing your story. I know it's going to encourage and bless those who hear it. So thanks for joining me today in studio. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by today's episode, share it with a friend. Please rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And connect with us at Cedarville on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another inspiring Cedarville story for God's glory. Mm -hmm.